0: Welcome to another edition of Acquisitions Anonymous. Today, Jess Mills and I had fun with a breakfast sausage manufacturing company. And it was an interesting one because they're not just mixing up sausage. Wait till you you see what what all goes into this business. It's somewhere in the Southeast. Uh, I was a little, uh, I don't know, cringy on it because, uh, you know, what what they do, but it's a really good company and uh, something from Axial for us to look at today. So join us.
1: Hey everyone, it's Bill. So funnily enough, today's episode is actually brought to you by another podcast. It's called The Science of Scaling, hosted by Mark Roberge. The cool thing about Mark is he's a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. And in each episode, Mark interviews the most successful sales leaders in technology to help you scale your business. So if you're into tech, and especially if you're into SaaS sales, this podcast will be really interesting to you. So whether they talk about how to find outside capital or what to look for in your first sales hire, uh, I checked out a few episodes and it was re- I was really impressed with some of the people he got. So Mark had the head of sales at OpenAI, Alyssa Rosenthal, and also Oliver Jay, who's the founding CRO of Asana. Uh, so some pretty heavy hitters. Uh, so I encourage you to check them out. If you go to any place where podcasts are downloaded, just search for the Science of Scaling. Uh, so that's the Science of Scaling in your favorite podcast app. That's it. Uh, and thanks again for tuning in to this episode
2: of Acquisitions Anonymous.
0: Hey, Mills, good to see you.
2: Yeah, you too, Heather.
0: It's just us today. So, what are we going to do?
2: I know. We have a, we have, there's always a fun deal. We like go through the parking lot and we're like, oh, this sounds hilarious. Let's do this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. What did we pick?
2: Breakfast sausage manufacturing company for sale. This is an axial deal and um, I'm not pulling it up on the screen um, because I, I don't have it there, but um, I'm just going to read it and there's some high level overview. So you're not missing much if you're, if you're on, if you're not on YouTube 40 year quote, best in class. Breakfast sausage manufacturer available for acquisition. The company will generate over $20 million in revenue and $4.3 million in EBITDA in 2022. Exit plan for founder. The company produces one of the best tasting products in the industry and has a loyal customer base of local, regional, and national food service companies and retailers. The company has generated strong historic organic growth with a long-term compound annual growth rates. CAGR is the acronym for that of over 10%. The overall breakfast sausage market is growing in the mid to high single digits. Product is very recession resistant. I don't know why that's funny to me, but (laughs) um, very recession resilient. Sorry. And if input prices rise, meaning if their material costs rise, the company is able to increase in user pricing. When hog prices fall, the company holds pricing and margins expand dramatically. The ownership has reinvested over $25 million in brand new state-of-the-art facilities. This includes a new 51,000-square-foot slicing, storage, and cooking plant situated on 14 acres. A modern 16,500-square-foot slaughtering plant with a capacity of 60 heads per hour. Oh my gosh, these details are amazing. I'm like cringing and also loving the detail. Uh, 60 heads per hour, revenues could double from current levels with little to no additional capital expenditures. The company continues to grow organically and their potential high, uh, highly accretive acquisition opportunities available. The company is located in a low tax, low regulation, non-union and low crime area that is extremely attractive for both employees and ownership. So we've got um, maybe a little bit of a typo here, but um, all right, 2022. 2020- 2020 revenue um it's listed as 2010 but that's not right i don't think who knows right i i I think that has to be 2020 it's a typo 2020 revenue was 13 million dollars 2021 was 18.9 2022 was 20 million 20.1 and they're estimating 2023 at 22.7 million so this was probably a teaser that was done early in the year and here we are in august looking at it and so um You can. It's always nice to see how they track relative to those estimates. Um, When you get a teaser early in the year and look at it again late in the year, their EBITDA. This just seems crazy to me. But their EBITDA in 2010 on 13 million in revenue was 4.3. Then they grew to 18.9 million dollars in revenue, 45 percent year over year growth, and they did four million in EBITDA. EBITDA margins went down. Then on 20 million in revenue. They had 6% top-line growth, EBITDA went from 4 million to 4.3, Then they had 13% top-line growth, and EBITDA went to 5.8 million. So there's some volatility here, and it's not really clear because they're presenting EBITDA, and it's not necessarily like EBITDA less CapEx. They, they talked about spending a lot of money on a facility. Um, it could be that, I guess, what do you think, Heather? Maybe from 2020 to 2021, they grew revenue so much, they spent a lot of money on equipment. Their margins went down as they like stepped into a new facility with a higher cost structure. Maybe. And then they, then they like kind of stabilized under this new kind of margin profile. And that's why they're saying they have room to double top line without more CapEx.
0: It could be that, but you know, the CapEx shouldn't all be expensed. So, you know, it wouldn't be totally tearing down the margin quite as bad as that. I'm guessing it has to do with the commodity pricing that they mentioned in the teaser. So what they're telling you is we get those great margins in like 2020, which obviously it's not 2010. It's gotta be 2020 In 2020 probably hog prices were cheaper. I mean, who knows what was going on in in that market in 2020. I don't, I don't
2: have those numbers top of mind right now. (laughs) I just, I just forgot them the other day.
0: (laughs) I know you did, you used to, (laughs) but that's what I'm thinking is like, maybe that was the year where they had that great margin because they don't drop their prices, even though their input costs decrease and then the the co- the input costs went normalized i guess i would say uh, you know the next few years but it is kind of interesting that they you know to go from 13 million to maybe 22 or 23 million this year you know and they really didn't increase their ebitda all that much for a 25 million dollar you know facility expansion that went on during that time they they worked really hard to get from 4.3 million to 5.8 and maybe that tells you something about how hard it is in the food business. Anything to do with farming and, um, you know, it, and food, it, it can be, it can be a lot of work, and and the and the and the margins are always volatile.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, when you're when you're at a certain size in this market, you can hedge, you know, but that you can't necessarily, you know, always hedge if you're at twenty million dollars in revenue and maybe. You're talking about maybe, I don't know, your input costs might be, you know, five, six, seven million dollars at the very most, um, you know, on. You know, on on the actual direct inputs, then you have labor and all those kind of things. Um, so, yeah, it, it's hard. I think it's hard to, to hedge when you're when you're this size.
0: Yeah. But but I mean, nonetheless, they were profitable every year, so they know they know how to price their product. Um, and what I thought I did laugh also when they said it was recession resistant. What I laughed at a little bit in my head, I have this picture of a news story that um, I don't know why it made me laugh. But when inflation was, you know, at its peak and um, the news reporters were trying to find people at the grocery store um, talking about, you know, food prices there were people saying, you know, I, I'm just so upset I can't afford to buy bacon this week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know why that always struck me. Cause like, well, there's other food that's a lot cheaper than bacon that you'll still be fed and, and fine and probably healthier. Um, yeah. But, you know, people want their their meat products for sure. Uh, and and uh, that was what they were upset about, at least in that in that story. <laughs>
2: It's interesting, too, that like in in this market, you know, you could be like they're, you know, arguably this is not like Tyson Foods. You know, this is not like the 800 pound gorillas. Um, But they say that they're a leading brand. And, you know, when you're when you're in this position as a company and as a purchaser of, you know, raw input materials, like they're they're buying hogs is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And they kill them. This is like a vertically integrated. They're not just buying, you know, bulk you know, meat and then mixing it together and putting it in a casing. They're buying this is a slaughter facility and a packaging facility. Um, and then, and then, you know, they sell to distribution who then puts it in the grocery store. They're not like physically taking it to, you know, the grocery store or to the restaurant and stuff. But they really probably don't move the needle that much and they don't have that much leverage in buying. There's been this really kind of fascinating thing that's been happening in the poultry market that I've not followed that much. But like the way I guess poultry prices are talked about, there's like the big stat is the um, Georgia dock price is, I think, like the average. Like it's like the index of poultry prices, Georgia dock price. And there was this huge thing. I think it was a few years ago, but I think it also has continued. There's been some more recent stuff, but there was a price fixing, an antitrust scandal in poultry. Where a lot of the producers were colluding and fixing the prices of, of, you know, the raw ingredient and, um, you know, saying, hey, look, let's kind of like manufacture, you know, a certain level of pricing and and make sure it doesn't go down. Um, I have no clue, like how the hog market, you know, compares to the poultry market or the beef market or, you know, these other kind of livestock markets and products, but you know, you, you stand in a place in the value chain where you don't necessarily have that much control over your inputs. Whereas, you know, if you, if you, you know, manufacture anything, you want to try and control those, those items as much as possible. And at a certain point, like if you, you know, if you're, if you're making something like a widget that has an input, you could go to different suppliers and try and get that. Like, let's just say it's a plastic part. You could go to different people and get that plastic part. The price of plastic changes, and you don't have any control over that. But you may be able to buy from other people. And in this case, these businesses they, they say they're in the South. Um, I think they list like a handful of states in the South where they might be. But like, if the price is really, really good for hogs in California, it doesn't help you, you know, <laughs> because you're in the South and you're not going to move the you know livestock across the country just to slaughter you know sixty head an hour. Um, so they they i think have some somewhat limited you know control prices. over those inputs mm-hmm.
0: well and i always think of food production as something that the government is going to always get heavily involved in it is in the government's best interest to keep people fed right the, the last the the last thing they're ever going to let happen is food prices to skyrocket to the point that people can't eat so i always think of any kind of food production business kind of as is really kind of Really in bed with the government. You know, the government is going to keep prices down, whether they subsidize or whatever type of regulation or scheme they kind of put in place. Um, you're always going to be under that somehow. Um, and so you you lack pricing power from that perspective as well. So I, I always think of farming and food as it's a tough business to be in. You don't yeah, have you're really control. joined at the
2: hip. You're joined at the hip for sure with the U.S. government as a beneficiary, yeah. you know, and a yeah. recipient or as somebody who's you know, kind of has limited, limited control. They, you know, they also, I guess have, we don't really know that much about the brand itself. Like they could have, you know, they could have an amazing brand. I don't really know. Uh, Jimmy Dean is like the big one, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, how powerful, right. Can brand awareness be? I think it probably plays a huge part now because they're, they're selling through distribution. You know, there there's a middleman in between them and the customer, and I don't think this type of business uh, makes the play to like try and sell direct. You know, Um, I just I just met with a guy this morning who is a distributor for frozen dog food, and he doesn't make anything. He's like, I tried that; it was terrible. Um, But I'm just a distributor, and it's frozen dog food, so he has to have like you know cold storage, and it comes on a refrigerated truck, and all those kind of things. But you know, you he a lot of these companies try and cut out middlemen to go direct because the margins are so much better. And now with like how accepted e-commerce, you know, has become and subscription models, I just got a dog. And of course my wife gets frozen dog food and I'm telling the guy, I'm like, yeah, actually I I didn't know anything about this that long ago, but I, I, I can't see this business doing that because you're talking about making a huge jump from, okay, now we buy hogs, we slaughter them. We take the ingredients and we package them into a branded product. And now we also have to have a fleet of vehicles to distribute it. And at $20 million in revenue, like this stuff is moving more than just like in their state, right? You're selling regionally at the very least. But I'd be curious, like the role of brand and how that gives you any leverage with distribution.
0: Yeah. And they did say they were local, regional and national. But what went through my head at a, a company of this size was, it's probably mostly a local brand you know like if you go in your grocery store you know you see the jimmy dean and then you might see some smaller brands that are more oh this is the local brand you know so yeah. especially in the south i would think like here in southern california i don't know if we have any local brands but i would think in the south you mm-hmm. you would and so that's where your name is maybe known and your brand is maybe known but yeah once you kind of distribute to the national Uh, I doubt that the national distribution is a big part of it, or maybe they white label or something for that, you know, that region of another national brand. I kind of wonder that too. Um, But speaking of your dog, I got to go back to your dog. That's Mm -hmm. really important. (laughs) Uh, Really important side note. I have a dog and I have to confess that I now make dog food for my dog. Somebody was just
2: telling me about this because it's so expensive to get dog food. And like yeah. your dog may have a special diet and, you know, you got to like cater to that.
0: Yeah. 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 Yep. So I have learned to make uh, dog food. And the, the sad part of it is like, he loves this dog food so much that I can never stop. Like You're stuck. It, it's, yeah. it's the highlight of his life. It is.
2: <laughs> wow. Maybe you should spin up a business, Heather. And um, I thought of it. Rent, like, rent you know, a commercial a kitchen. Recipe. And yeah.
0: Yeah. I got a recipe. It works funny. really well. <laughs>
2: I'm not going to tell my wife that this is a
3: thing and that she can not I'm going to tell yeah. her. I'm going to have to find <laughs> yeah. her <and> her. <laughs> all right. Taking a quick pause here. I have something to tell you. This is Michael. I hate bookkeeping. I hate bookkeeping. I hate doing HR. I hate doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, but for bookkeeping, I have found a solution. It is um, my friend Charlie's business called cloudbookkeeping.com. So that's cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, they are your perfect partner. If you want to get bookkeeping out of your hair and focus on making your company, co- your customers happier and more successful. So um, please give them a call. Call Charlie, cloudbookkeeping.com. Tell them we sent you. Uh, they're a great way. If you're a business buyer, if you're a business owner, you're tired of hassling uh, with getting your bookkeeping done. He's got a whole fleet of people that are well trained and work for him. Uh, he's located here in San Antonio. So I can tell you because of that, he's awesome. And, uh, they're a great partner for you to potentially call to help with all your bookkeeping needs. So you can do the important stuff in your business, uh, rather than worry about getting your books, right. So, uh, give Charlie a call cloudbookkeeping.com and now back to the episode.
0: Yeah. But, uh, I think, I think this is a tough one in, in terms of, you know, brand, I don't think their brand strength is probably huge. I think their geography is probably big, right? What they yeah, do yeah. and where they are is probably like the most important part of, of this business.
2: You know, you think about the, think about like the nature of running this business for a minute. And then let's talk about the financials mm-hmm. and the deal itself. And like, how does a deal like this even get done? Cause it's not, it's not with the SBA at four to $5 million in average EBITDA. No. Um, but like running this business, I mean, I, we don't know how many employees they have, but they're in 51,000 square feet and they're slaughtering 60 hogs an hour. And then there's a production line. I mean, we're talking dozens of employees at the very least um th- this is manufacturing and food production which are both very hard and like you mentioned some of the you know some of the elements of dealing with the the federal government but you're also dealing with the FDA you're you're dealing with food and so it's highly regulated lots of compliance and if you're you know they they say this there's kind of a clue here the slaughterhouse is a different building probably on the same property than the one that's actually packaging the food because of all the like foodborne illness and, you know, contamination, and all those kind of things. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I have a friend who runs a business here in South Carolina that washes lettuce and they have a massive, I mean, it's they have 600 employees, but they have, you know, tens of thousands, it's over a hundred thousand square feet. And like 90% of their facility is climate controlled to like 42 degrees Fahrenheit because Mm -hmm. of E. coli so their energy bills are just astronomical because at at a certain temperature they're all they do is wash lettuce they don't grow it they just wash it and package it and like if you go to you know Whole Foods here in South Carolina they they basically package and label a version of lettuce for Whole Foods and they also sell like lettuce to McDonald's and a bunch of different people Mm -hmm. but there's all these funny things about food production and, and especially packaged food. Like at the very, the last step of the product going out of their facility is multiple metal detectors of like to, to metal detect bagged lettuce, shredded bagged lettuce. And I was like, why are there multiple? And it's because they have to have all this redundancy because if like a little part breaks off, you know, in a, Mm -hmm. in a piece of the, the, you know, processing line and gets into a bag of lettuce, then you know it's bad for everybody. It's bad for McDonald's or Whole yeah. Foods. It's really bad for the company. It comes back on them, and they have multiple. So there's all these layers of redundancy in case like one metal detector goes up. You know, goes bad, and that's just one example, right, of all yeah. of the potential kind of headaches. So this company has figured out. I mean, to net four to five million dollars a year selling sausage that you make, and there's that analogy, right, of like I don't I don't know if they use that analogy in other parts of the world, but. Um, in the South, you know, like people would say, like, you don't want to see how the sausage is made. But we
0: see it everywhere. Yeah, yes. we see yeah. it okay. everywhere. Yeah. We
2: have some weird Southern saying, so I just want to make sure I wasn't um yeah. being toned up. Um, but like this is this is how the sausage is made. I mean, this has got to be a terrible smell. <laughs> I don't like a terrible be there. sound. Yeah, this is this is a job. Like you are this is work. I'm just thinking about quality of life, you know, owning this yeah. business. Buyer business yeah. fit is very, very important here. And Heather's making yeah. a face. For those of you not on YouTube, this is not a deal for her. This is no. not the worm worm farm. This no. is not as attractive.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll confess. I stopped eating meat uh, about a year and a half ago. I um, so I, I mean, do. this is really I like not the business for you. <laughs> <I> <laughs> okay. do eat fish, only. but huh. no more meat, and it's mainly for health reasons. But you know, yeah, it, it it's interesting. It changes your your taste palette. And anyway, no, this one's not for me. Even if I was eating meat, it's just you know, people don't. They don't understand what goes into the packages that they buy in the grocery store. And this, you would absolutely know every single bit of it. And I think that would be really tough on a lot of people. I do think farming, this kind of, you know, this kind of food operation usually appeals to people who want to live off the land. You know, they have kind of a different philosophy about life. I know that um, when I was at Live Oak Bank, we had a poultry vertical and I learned a little bit about that business. And what I saw was that a lot of small poultry farmers aren't really making very much money. I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised, like, wow, that's a lot of work. And it was just, you know, along the lines of this, it was a lot of work for relative to how much they were making. And what I was told uh, by the folks that really work in that space is it really appeals to people who want to live in a rural area, raise their family that way, you know, live with live off what they make. It's just a kind of co- completely different life set uh, life. Uh, mindset than most people might have. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a, yeah, a unique person that would want to be in this business. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. And if you like sausage, you probably should not get into this business. You should be like sausage agnostic because if you like it, you probably will not like it anymore. You know, no. if, you, if you're living and breathing this environment all the time. Absolutely not. With this size deal, Heather, I mean, at four to $5 million in EBITDA, this is like, this has private equity or, you know, add on or, you know, or platform acquisition written all over it. Um, is there an environment where you could imagine an owner operator buying this and being anywhere near competitive?
0: It would be really tough because of, you know, the amount of equity that they would have to bring in. You know, a typical single owner operator type person needs a little bit of leverage because they're not going to be bringing in that much equity. It kind of doesn't pencil if they have to bring in as much as you would. So once you're above like three and a half million of EBITDA, uh, really above two, you're outside of the SBA realm. But when you're above three and a half, you're at least in the in the ballpark of what conventional lender, cash flow lenders would would look at. You're you're going to have to find a lender that likes, uh, you know, agriculture basically, an ag lender. It, it would be the, the right kind of lender for this. I have no idea what their terms look like, but that's the kind of debt you'd get. It's probably an add on for like a, a bigger company is Is my uh, my thought. Maybe they need that geography or something, but I don't see someone just going out and buying this one as a platform, at least from what I can see.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much activity, too, in this segment of the market size wise and in like consumer patch package products and food products. There's so much strategic acquisition that happens where you have one corporate entity who goes, hey, look, we have, you know, we have these product lines, like maybe we do, you know, bacon and packaged ham and like lunch meats and things like that. But we really don't have a good, you know, sausage line or vertical or product. And so they grow kind of via acquisition that way. And they look at it and and I don't know if you've looked at many of these because I don't think it comes up as much in the SBA. But when you look at like corporate divestitures or corporate you know acquisitions, kind of, you know, a, an entity that's going to you know kind of assimilate another entity into itself, like all the traditional rules go out the window. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've looked at a handful of corporate divestitures and they're so weird because the, that whole like, why am I the lucky one? You know what? Like, why is this owner selling like that? That's an important question. And why am I the lucky one who's talking to you? is even more so that way because you're like, you guys are really good at running a business and maybe a set of businesses. Why is this one the one that you want to sell? It's probably yeah. not because it's doing great. And sometimes there's a great answer. Sometimes it's, you know, well, it just is not in line with our company's strategic initiatives and like, we love it. And there's a good team there and all kinds of things. It may just be kind of, you know, our board decided it's one that we're not going to keep. But um, a, a strategic buyer would look at this and go, okay, Look at all of the synergies that we can put in place. You know, we have, you know, corporate buyers and corporate, you know, sales folks who operate regionally already. We can get rid of a huge cost center that way. We have relationships with distributors that we can open up doors that were closed to this company. You know, we don't need their payroll and their accounting and their admin folks and their, per, you know, all we need is a person to answer the phone and a person to manage the plant. And then we're going to outsource everything to our kind of core team. That can really fold this in and and we make maybe one or two hires and eliminate a bunch. It's just a totally different financial exercise and it allows somebody to look at this and pay, you know, at this size. I mean, I would think a business like this is probably trading for five, six, maybe even six and a half, seven times EBITDA. I would not be surprised if the right person comes along because it's of a certain size that it's very attractive and, and it doesn't have to pencil the same way.
0: Right. I agree with you. Um, and, and, you know, this is the type this is the size of deal we tend to see on Axial. You know, the bigger companies, different kind of financing p- perspective and how they how you get them to pencils completely different. We do sometimes do carve outs, what we'll call carve outs in SBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trick there is it's kind of similar, but it's like we're reconstructing a P&L that's outside of the the um, combined tax return. And you have to be really careful because it's in the seller's best interest to, you know, game that, that uh, the set of answers that they give you as far as, oh, well, no, you know, the costs are really low over there. Well, maybe they're not so low. So a lot of lenders won't even touch those. Um, And I will work on some, but it has to be something where I feel like it's a clean separation. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I ask a lot of questions and if it seems like the companies are too meshed together, I don't want to touch it, uh, because I know it's going to be too hard to figure out what your real, what even die you're buying, you know, really tough.
2: Yeah. Sometimes they have separate, you know, PNLs by division, but then you look at a lot of times with those, you have to enter into like a shared services agreement Yeah, with, right. you know, with the, with the seller or the divester in this case and go, Hey, we don't have our own it department. We don't have our own accounting department. Like we're going to have to, kind of pry those things apart, but it can't happen day one. So can we agree on a fee structure and a scope of work where, you know, your, our, you, our, it guy, really your it guy will continue to do it for me for a year and, you know, our benefits and our payroll and all those kind of things. It's very, very tricky to tease it apart. And the like reality is, is you don't get the same cost structure standing alone as you would in that shared environment and so like you said it's very hard to project the you know pro forma uh cost Mm -hmm. structure and and cash flow
0: yeah and actually the the one case uh where i saw the most seller fraud and it was proven in a in a court case Hmm. was a carve out um and uh you know despite really you know a smart sophisticated buyer and a lot of great diligence The seller has the upper hand in lying to you in that situation. And that one did, you know, um, he had, so that's one thing I learned, you know, the hard way is, um, you know, that this, if the seller wants to misrepresent something, they're going to get away with it, maybe not get away in the long run, but they're going to be able to convince you of that because they hold all the cards. So this is a situation where it can be even more tricky, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That information asymmetry is like, it's natural in any deal. Like you've forgotten more about the business. Like I could do like 24 seven due diligence for six months and I still can't uncover everything that you know and have forgotten and all those things. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is a really interesting, it doesn't, it doesn't really scare me. I think it's, it's just difficult to understand and contemplate a scenario where this deal could happen without a big kind of strategic kind of edge, right? Either you own something similar or you have a background in this space and a lot of people will get comfortable backing you doing it. Um, you know, I've had friends who like sold, you know, a construction products business and they get liquid and then they buy another construction products business. That's drastically different, but it kind of sells in the same way. And it's, you know, in the same submarket. And it may be like the, the type of person who does this deal as, as like a owner operator, maybe has a background in the industry. Um, you know, yeah. if it's not a traditional private equity deal, but my guess is, I mean, we, we don't have all the info, but my guess is, is that this company um, probably went through a traditional investment banking process with a mandate and kind of a, you know, a managed, you know, auction type process like a, a dog and pony show. And depending on when it went to market, I, I wouldn't be surprised if. You know, if if they've already transacted, you know, in in based on what they're saying, they had you know forecasts for 2023, mm-hmm. um, and here we are, you know, in August, late August 2023. I wouldn't be surprised if the company's already transacted. One thing about businesses like this that can be really tricky in the closing process is when there is volatility of the underlying kind of inputs, like you know hog prices, yeah. and 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 anything like that you can like you can get really really far into due diligence and through no fault of your own and through no fault of the sellers the whole table can move out from under you and oh, yeah. all of a sudden you know hog prices spike right or coffee prices you know crater or oil prices it happens a lot right in oil field services um all of a sudden you know some political event some geopolitical event happens and you know, or like, there's a salmonella, salmonella outbreak or an E. coli outbreak or something like that, and hog prices just crash, and now the, the deal doesn't work, and it just—that's the risk. That's the company-specific yeah. risk that is not, you know, seller-specific or buyer-specific.
0: I have a story. I, I remember uh, it was a long time ago. It was a deal—a seafood, two seafood companies they were, one was buying the other. I don't remember which one was the buyer or the seller, but one was in Seattle and one was in San Francisco and they had different types of fish, you know, types Mm -hmm. of seafood that they, which if you think about it is extremely seasonal, you know, each type of fish even was, I, I, it was such an interesting deal. And the deal, it did, I think finally close, but oh my gosh, all the numbers changed because they intended to close a certain time of the year Uh, Mm -hmm. When they knew where, you know, between the seasons of different kinds of fish and uh, they couldn't, you know, closing gets delayed. Guess what? Whenever you do that, whenever you plan on closing a seasonal deal, oh, boy, this happens a lot. And they ended up closing at the height of some of the seasons that were going on. The inventory levels were, you know, triple what we thought they would be. All the numbers had to be redone. More equity had to come in. It was Mm -hmm. wild. Uh, So yeah, yeah, I totally know what you, what you mean there.
2: That, that makes like an already hard process, even harder. Like any, like there's been a lot, I've seen a handful of like packaged, you know, consumer products. Like if, if you sell like Halloween products or like Michael, right. Sells fireworks, you know, and, and he's talked about that. I think on some episodes, it's just very tricky if you want and need to sell or buy a business like that, because like you said, you build the whole pro forma on a target networking capital a target amount of inventory that's going to transfer what your you know inventory purchases are going to be kind of coming into or out of the season and then all of a sudden uh oh you know we we missed closing by 45 or 60 days and now we don't have any inventory and they have all the cash and they don't want to give it to us cuz we agreed on a working capital number or yeah. you know calculation so that that's interesting two different yeah, seafood companies
0: Yeah. And that's like anybody that wants to close a deal, if there's any seasonality in it, you obviously want to close it just before the busy season starts. And I've closed quite a few like that where we made it, but what if you don't, what Mm -hmm. if the, you know, it gets delayed and the most stressed out people in, in closing situations are unseasonal businesses where we miss the deadline and everybody that, that stress too, um, kind of compounds, right. makes everybody a little crazy and it gets, it it gets pretty Mm -hmm. wild. So you're trying to close on a, a business that has any seasonality at all, you know, you, you really have to plan it out. And even and even when you do, it may not work the way you think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. There's always that kind of like, you know, long tail risk type thing that can happen. Um, we looked, I looked at buying a business several years ago that really benefited from the H one B visa program. Mm-hmm. And then when um, Trump was in office, like change some of the the rules and like the thresholds and everything. And all of a sudden like their entire labor force and it was like legal, you know, legal immigration, um, seasonal yeah. worker immigration. And, um, all of a sudden like their, their massive workforce just got like completely chopped and it, it really impacted the business in a really, really negative way. And what do you do? I mean, part of their cost structure really benefited from that. Um, so those, those kind of risks, everybody puts them on their kind of like SWOT analysis, you know, but, um, it's it's always like what, you know, what you can't plan for.
0: Yeah. We call here. that stroke of the pen risk. Mm-hmm. Just one <laughs> one yeah. signature and and that whole, you know, part of your business model could go away. So, yeah, it's yeah. super interesting. Well, are you buying this one, Mills? What do you think?
2: No, I don't. I, I If it were in, like, honestly, honestly, if it were in South Carolina, I think it would be super interesting.
0: You want to see how the sausage is made?
2: Yes, I do. I do. Um, I, I, I couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it on my own. Like from a size perspective, I think it would be difficult. I think it would require like a lot of, a lot of focus and a lot of handholding to migrate this type of business from that, like kind of independent, like salt of the earth. That's like, we saw a 2020 number that is like almost half, right. Of what it is today. And so you got to imagine if you go back maybe two, three, four, five years Prior, like if you go back to 2015, 2016, this business was probably barely, you know, barely generating any cash flow. So the owner of this business, right, is like probably not like, you know, textbook, cereal, you know, food product entrepreneur. They're probably a guy who was like just really, really good at like raising and packaging and, you know, um, slaughtering, you know, animals. So I think it would be very difficult to transition. But, but if it were here, but that's just me as a buyer. I have like a huge bent towards it being in the Carolinas. You Mm -hmm. could send me the, like the deal of a lifetime, you know, in Ohio. And it's just, it it would be very, very difficult.
0: Right. So wherever this is, if it's it's, it's someone local, yeah, that's, it's more appealing for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've established that I'm not buying
2: it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This was a fun one. Heather, any, any other thoughts on it before we break?
0: No, I mean, I I think uh, I think it's a cool, you know, another big axial deal, you know, good size.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the guys missed a good one. But thanks for everybody for for joining in and uh, stay tuned next week for another episode.